0: Welcome to the Artemis Take on Global Equities, a podcast series in association with Artemis Investment Management. I'm Katrin Schindler from CityWire and with me is Jakob de Tuschleck, who's a fund manager at the Global Income Fund at Artemis. In this first episode, we set the scene by taking a look at the bigger picture and specifically the impact of macro events on equity markets. Jakob, it seems like it's stress everywhere at the moment, what with the energy crisis, the war in Ukraine, and the rising um, debt burdens, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, You've written a piece recently on the change in regimes and how we're currently witnessing a regime change that's only occurring once every few decades, basically. So my first question is, why do you think that and how does that regime change materialize?
1: So um, thanks for having me. It's always risky talking about regime change, because it's like the old joke about economists predicting seven of the last five recessions, or you know, economists can give you a number and a date, but not both. And, and you know, talking about regime change, we, we talk about it a lot, and it doesn't happen very often, so we could get it wrong. But it does strike me that when we think back over the last 40 years, you know, inflation peaked in '79, and then we've had 40 years of declining. Uh, inflation, declining rates, uh, 89, the wall fell and we had sort of a kickstart of globalization. China got into the global economy. That was about, that was 89. So sort of you've got 79, you got 89, then you got 2009 was the financial crisis. And then uh, recently we've had COVID. So, so, you know, there are some of these big events happening. And I think the war in Ukraine, um, I mean, it's a massive thing and it's something that will impact us for, for for years and decades, but many of the trends that we're seeing, you mentioned inflation, food prices, et cetera, they they already started going up before Ukraine. So in a way Ukraine is sort of and, and COVID to some extent is a catalyst for trends that were already sort of waiting to to happen. And what we're dealing with now is, as you say, is a is a perfect storm of high inflation, not very high growth, central banks in a bit of a pickle. And that's why we're seeing the stress everywhere because it's not a great env- environment for almost every financial asset I can think
0: of. Yeah. Would you say that against that background, recession fears are actually justified right now?
1: Well, they are, because if you know rates go up, oil prices high, usually that kills the economy. And the central banks know that. They talk about wanting to get inflation down. They don't really know how, because higher rates is not going to create more supply of whatever is driving the inflation. So I don't think anybody has sort of a a short-term fix, and in a way that's the problem that we've had 10 years or even longer of, of relatively sort of excessive monetary policy. You could even go back to Greenspan 20 years ago and say, you know, lower rates has been the response to everything, and then we get to zero, get negative, inflation suddenly comes, and now we're discussing whether it's transitory or not, and who knows, will it stay at these levels? Probably not. Or will it go down to where it was before? Also probably not. So it's going to be above the 2% central banks like. Then the market can dis- discuss whether 4% is the new 2%, will they accept 4%? And of course the talk about recession is justified because um, inflation at these rates is not something we've seen before. So one would expect that it would impact both the behavior of financial agents but also of consumers.
0: Yeah. And taking a step back, to what extent would you say are the problems um, that global equity investors are currently facing, maybe the consequence of a period of malinvestments?
1: Well, so this is the other point, which is that we've, we've, if we sort of narrow it a bit down to equity markets, is that we've had um, 10 years that have been um, you know, quite interesting in many ways, but we've had a pretty roaring bull market in, in, in long duration growth assets. We're all aware of that. Um, the bit of the equi- m- equity market that I look at, which is income generating dividend stocks, have not had a particularly good time. Uh, they've not benefited from lower rates and excessive uh, loose monetary policy and QE, etc. The longer you have excess liquidity in the financial system, the longer you allow money to flow into speculative areas. And I'm not saying speculative in a negative way. It's a rational response that areas that are cash flow absorbing as opposed to cash flow generating will get a lot of the investment. Um, I would tend to say that that's malinvestment, but people might disagree with me and that's fair. But when we look at the amount of money that has gone into you know, streaming services, or last mile delivery of food um, versus what has gone into things like boring stuff, like producing energy that isn't green, or building roads, or fixing bridges, that is not, those are not very sexy areas. Mm -hmm. They are not lottery tickets. You kind of know that the return is not going to be amazing, maybe slightly above your cost of capital. When the cost of capital goes down, which is what happens when central banks print money or have negative rates or zero rates. Um, you can afford to maybe think of something that will be a 10 bagger, a year 10 times return, 10 years out.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, because you have the time on your side, you can wait. So, in a way, what, what's going on right now is that time horizons are shortening. The cost of money, your opportunity cost is, is, is changing. And from my point of view, yes, I would say there's been a certain amount of underinvestment in areas that are in the real economy then there's probably been too much investment in the more virtual parts of the economy. I mean, one thing that struck me, I've, I used to live in central London, very recently moved out, but when I lived in, in Primrose Hill, you know, I could get gorillas or get here or, you know, I could get delivery of, of stuff to my door within 10 minutes um, or even shorter if, if, if I was lucky. Um, so I can get the pasta to my front door in seven minutes, but the pro- problem now is that we don't have the wheat to make the pasta. Mm-hmm. So the sort of last mile delivery is where the investment has gone. You can say the same on streaming services, that you know, there's a lot of ways of delivering the content to your smart TV, but then the issue we're seeing is that actually making good content is quite hard. So it costs more than you think. True indeed. Um, and you know, that's clearly sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm being a bit unfair because Streaming services are not going away and last mile delivery is not going away. But there might have been too many suppliers mm-hmm. of something that isn't going away. But we need to start finding out who's the winner and who's the loser. Mm-hmm. We can't all be winners.
0: And another area that has actually um, experienced quite massive capital outflows in recent months is the tech sector. And the money there flowed to asset-backed or cash generative companies, which some of them you've just mentioned. But what other areas would you say are likely to perform well in the medium to long term?
1: Well, that's the trickiest question, because there is inflation, and then there is inflation. There is recession, and then there are recessions. You know, they can have different flavors. And I think we have to be – I want to be very careful sort of saying that it's going to be – you know, just because we had 10 good years for growth investment doesn't mean the next 10 years are going to be great for value investment. I think that's – I mean, something I – might like to say from a marketing point of view, but, but it won't be in a straight line. It's more the direction of travel. And I think the direction of travel is that a number of industries that might have been seen as being fully commoditized over the last 10, 15, 20 years, because of the underinvestment that we've seen in their areas, there might be a bit of a either pricing power coming back or a bit of a scarcity factor. Mm-hmm. So of course commodity ma- producers are, are commoditized. That's what they do. But if we haven't opened a coal, uh, uh, sorry, let's uh, uh, say a, 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 a copper mine for, for a while, and we've been closing down coal, then suddenly those who actually have those resources might have something that's a bit more scarce than we thought of maybe 10, 15 years ago. Likewise in energy, if you, there's been very little investment into exploration and. and and production, suddenly a high price doesn't automatically lead to a bigger supply response because there is just no supply. Everybody's running at 100% capacity. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think it's a question of growth versus value. I think it's a question of looking at certain industries and just say, what's the depreciation of assets over the last, let's say, 10, 15 years? What has the investment been? Are we sort of down to a level where they're already producing everything they can and we need more of it? And of course, then things like the Ukraine war or the fact that China is slowing down dramatically and sort of changing a bit its behavior on the global stage, then that becomes very relevant. Because then also the other point to make on, on the commoditized part of the economy is that um, back in the day, a barrel of oil from Russia was the same as a barrel of oil from Nigeria or from Brazil. I mean, maybe there's light and heavy and sour and sweet and, and various types of crude and all that. but now it's very different we're not allowed to buy the russian one so suddenly things that are commoditized are not completely commodities i.e russian oil might go at a discount into asian economies where they are they don't have the sanction and the embargo and it's different in the west and suddenly then it becomes a bit more nuanced than just a global market one price and everybody's just producing
0: and where would you say is esg coming in in that whole picture i mean esg stocks have taken quite a beating this year and they're still struggling. So has this been it for ESG? Or are we? is the market oversaturated with ESG? I think
1: It's a bit like with tech. It's not over for tech. I mean, will the world be more virtual in 10 years? Of course it will. Will the tech companies go away? And it was the same, I remember, I, I lived in the US in, in 2000 when we had the, the tech bubble and the bust. And, and a lot of what people talked about back then happened just 15, 20 years later with different companies. Mm. So I don't think ESG is dead at all. The trend will continue. But it probably may be went a bit too quickly for a period of time when money was available. It's
0: over-eager, kind of.
1: Everybody wanted to to accelerate green energy, et cetera, but it takes time to pivot an economy that was reliant on, on coal, and we see what's going on in Germany now. You know, Suddenly, RWE is buying coal from Poland because they can't actually do what they thought they could. So I don't think ESG is dead at all, uh, but it's just a reminder that you know, massive changes in behavior of corporates, and this is on the environmental side, uh, the, the sort of the G is is fine, there's no change there, but but on the E and S, um, it might just be a question of sort of changing the speed, not the direction, and also remembering that, you know, on the one hand we have what, what some people call the, the climate emergency or, or, or climate issues, and then on the other hand, You also have the thing that you want to feed people and we're seeing it a lot with the companies we invest in that uh, for example soft commodity companies that are engaged in GMOs for example that was seen as a bad thing from an ESG point of view and now suddenly we're thinking well if you have issues with getting food to Egypt because wheat prices gone up massively well maybe you rather want some GMO enhanced uh, uh, foodstuffs that can avoid um, you know, disaster and, 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 and pain at the expense of maybe some, some issues that weren't as big. And, and that becomes a very, um, let's say, uh, loaded emotional discussion, mm. because that, there's no clear answer to that. But we're seeing it with the companies we speak to, the things that might have been seen to be bad from an ESG point of view. You might want to rethink it in a world where you have war in 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 Europe and 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 where a lot of people are, are are having trouble just heating their houses and getting food on the table. Yeah.
0: And with all these uncertainties going on at the moment, how difficult is it for investors to kind of stick to their longer-term objectives?
1: Now that's an interesting question because um we all have long-term objectives and then something happens and then you rethink it and mm-hmm. and you know if if and, and ESG is part of it, and green, green energy is part of it, that you know, when, when the objective is, um, for example, that, that you wanna, from an investment point of view, if the objective is that you wanna grow your dividend, for example, ahead of inflation, well, good luck when inflation is 10 12 15%. Um, none of a thought, two years ago that that would be the case. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of investment objectives that obviously become, we have to think about you know, what is it we're trying to achieve for the end client. And if the end client is, from our point of view, what we want to deliver is a high dividend yield and some kind of inflation protection. You know, we're not gonna argue that we can grow our dividend ahead of an 18% inflation, but also we don't think that that will be the steady state for years to come. But we probably have to, for the companies that we invest in, have a higher hurdle rate um, and just say, well, can you grow your dividend 5 eight, ten 8%, 10% a year? Because it's not enough just growing at 2% if our end investors are feeling a loss of, of real value of money that is two, three, four times of that.
0: So, Jakob, that leads nicely into my next question, which is how can the Artemis Global Income Fund actually take advantage of the current environment?
1: So, in our fund, we, we invest in companies with... with relatively high free cash flow yields so companies that are generating a lot of cash companies that can give that cash back to shareholders either in dividends or share buybacks so we automatically sit in the more value part of the market so you know we, we cannot invest in the big US software companies that are creating a lot of growth and and have massive cash flows but but don't pay dividends so for us this rotation in the economy and in in the environment that we're in is not a bad one because a lot of the companies that we have invested in for years are seen as the old economy, the boring ones. And it's been tough over 10 years, you know, investing in, 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 in automakers or industrials or utilities when we see Netflix kind of drive the market higher, Amazon, et cetera. So in a way we can take advantage of, of the current market pivot or market regime change. Uh, by doing nothing (laughs) because in a way we we do what we did before and and we were not in the parts of the market that were really pulling ahead and as the market is sort of broadening out and we are seeing stocks that are um, not not the growth stocks but the more cash flow generating uh, lower valued stocks actually outperform the market as a whole that's Mm -hmm. just good for us so we're taking advantage of it in the sense by staying true to what we do and not give up and that that has been a good strategy I also think we can take advantage of the current environment by being global. Mm -hmm. I know this sounds very banal, but we're in a world now where it really matters where you are and we learned that. We had a small exposure to Russia and of course very uh, annoyed about that in retrospect. But policy risk and country risk is coming back. So being global and saying we don't wanna be, let's say in the UK because there's political uncertainty or rates are gonna go higher or uh, the, the Bank of England is not able to raise rates to stop inflation. You know, we don't have to have a large exposure to, to Sterling and, and UK. We can say we want to be in Brazil, or we want to be in, in Israel or in New Zealand, for that matter, to get far away from everything <laughs> <laughs> that's going on. Yeah, right. uh, you can buy a New Zealand utility and just kind of hide in, in that currency and, and, and get a dividend. So I think that the, let's say, in a world that where globalization is being rolled back and you, you're starting to get two big blocks, sort of the West and the rest, And not all of the rest is emerging markets. There are countries that are developed that are sitting in in, in the rest, so to speak. Um, Then being global gives you ability to to kind of navigate uh, volatility in currencies. And also volatility in environment. We're seeing companies that were global before that now have to decide, do we want to sell to China? Do we want to sell to the US? We can't sell to both. And uh, I think that could be a big source of alpha just getting your countries right, and getting your block right. Uh, and, and also, that's not the same for all sectors. In some sectors, you, you, know, you wanna have exposure to, to ASEAN or India, um, and in others, you just wanna say, well, actually, we just want those companies that are selling to, to, to the Western world. Uh, and especially in tech, that's something we're seeing, things like chip manufacturers having to decide do we want to cater to, 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 to China or do we want to cater to the U.S.? Yeah. And we're seeing a lot of onshoring. So I think where we can take advantage of that is, A, having a global view, saying we want these currencies and these countries. Uh, and, and secondly, we can take advantage of it, of the way we run the fund, that we're quite nimble. nimble. We're two people running the fund, and, and we try to have sort of a fairly pragmatic view of the world. But I think bottom line – The short answer would be we can take advantage of it because the last 10 years have not really been good for the areas of the market we're sitting in. Whereas now there's a bit more of a tailwind.
0: I like what you just said about getting your countries right. It's a good one. (laughs) Um, You basically answered that question already, but what impact does the macroeconomic backdrop have on your portfolio's defensive positioning?
1: I think the macro matters. I mean, macro always matters, but sometimes it matters more than not. And it's sort of, You know, you can go for maybe a year where the environment is the same. You kind of know what central banks are doing. You have a bit of clarity on the economy and you can actually talk about companies. And then there are environments like the one we're in now, where frankly, depending on what side of the bed you get out in the morning, you can talk yourself into almost every position because you could argue that central banks are going to hike a lot, get inflation down, or that they're going to buckle and they can't just raise rates because there's so much debt in the global economy. Um, and we don't really have that clarity yet. So I think at this point where we are in the portfolio is that we try not to take big macro risks mm-hmm. because there is no clarity and, and, and it can also change. I mean, every time Powell talks, it seems that you know, he goes from a pivot to a pirouette. It's sort of, uh, and whether it's scripted or not. Um, so we don't have an inside track necessarily on, on, on that. Um, so I think what we are doing now in the portfolio is trying to go back to basics and say where are cash flows really ample, where are balance sheets in good shape, and I think that's a very important point. After a lot of years where companies could borrow very cheaply, you know, our portfolio now probably has less debt than maybe not than ever, but but you know we we've really we've really sort of tried going through and say, what are the companies that potentially could get in trouble if funding costs went up by a lot? So leverage has has become something we look at way more than we did, let's say, two, three years ago. And I think those are the issues that that we've addressed in the portfolio over the last, let's say, nine months. Um, Which companies really can sort of just do what they do, produce cash, pay their dividends, And once we have a bit of clarity on inflation, once we have a bit of clarity on where we are in the cycle, we can then start taking a bit more of a top-down view.
0: Thanks very much. That's a great note to end on. Listeners, you'll find the link to Jakob's article on the transition to a new regime in the show notes. And keep an eye out for the second episode where we'll discuss what Maslow's hierarchy of needs has to do with equity investing and how news headlines are influencing capital flows. Bye for now and see you next time.